Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. I'm going to be joined today on the program by two great guests, and we're going to talk about a pivotal moment in sports history, actually a pivotal year, and the relevance of all of that today. You can join us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there. You can also send us your questions by email to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We are still more than a year into doing the show remotely, so you can't call us with your questions. So our guests today are John Wertheim, who's the executive editor of Sports Illustrated and a correspondent for CBS 60 Minutes, and Galen Clavio, who is the director of the National Sports Journalism Center at Indiana University. He's a member of the IU Athletics Name, Image, and Likeness Task Force he also is a uh, faculty member at the media school. So thanks both of you for being here with us. And John, I probably should have mentioned that you are also a proud graduate of Bloomington High School North. That should be the first line on uh, on my bio <laughs> in a uh, in an HT alum as well. Uh, nice to be here. Hi, Bob. Hi, Galen. Hey, thanks for being here. So I want to talk about the book. Uh, what were you doing in 1984 and how long have you been thinking about this book? Um, I think it's something that I've probably been thinking about it since uh, that summer when I was a, a rising eighth grader. I just completed my uh, seventh grade at University Middle School, a wonderful school uh, right right on the bypass. And um, I the, the story really is that this started as a Sports Illustrated story. I was uh, you know I was a middle schooler. It was the summer of the Olympic trials. Bob Knight was the coach. Everyone came to Bob Knight because that's what you did. And suddenly, and I don't know if you recall this i don't know if I, were you in bloomington bob in in, in 84 i certainly was yes sir um, i don't know if you have these, these recollections too it, it did not seem especially remarkable it was just kind of a cool thing but you'd go to the college mall or you'd go to putt-putt or you'd go to uh you know the petersons to get a smoothie and there would be michael jordan patrick ewing charles barkley all the players were in town and it was sort of a sleepy summer and uh everybody was was practicing for this olympic team the students were gone and as a seventh grader, I remember riding my bike to assembly hall and doors would be unlocked. You'd walk in and there would be, uh, there would be the members of the Olympic basketball team practicing. And, um, it, I, I wrote about this for sports illustrated and, um, sort of d- d- didn't think there was enough for a book here, but the more I poked around on the summer of 84 and everything else going on, the more I thought, uh, aha, maybe, uh, maybe there's some business we could be doing here. I, I like that uh, that thought of you as a budding journalist back then, which, you know, no door is unlocked for you. you just walk right on in and watch them practice. Uh, it's symbolic, but also a, a sign of the times, which, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of nostalgia. There's a lot of Bloomington nostalgia. But what I also realized was, you know, the, the underbelly of this is these are not empowered athletes. Uh, you know, whether it's the, the Supreme Court decision from a few days ago or whether it's Michael Jordan having to come to the coach's location, even though he wasn't being paid and didn't have much leverage. I mean, the, the flip side to all of this kind of sports is pure and sports is uh, sort of re- remember the days when it was so easy. And you didn't have these, these membranes of security and publicity. The flip side to that is I sort of realized to what extent the, these athletes uh, didn't have any power. And uh, that, that's kind of the, the, the flip side to the fact that I could walk right in and watch Michael Jordan was, why was that possible? So um, it's it's a bit of a ten. I, I enjoyed the benefits of that, but I, I realize it's not quite as sort of simple and pure as perhaps it's made out to be. Right. Well, I, I want to ask Galen. Uh, Galen, I almost hate asking you this question, but how old were you in 1984? I was I was either four or five years old, depending on the time of year we're talking about, Bob. So yeah, a little little younger than both of you. I think. Yeah. So so you weren't a Michael Jordan fan yet, right? So. I, I'd seen a little bit on television, but no, it hadn't really grown into that fandom as of that point. 
Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of issues today, and I know you're going to be able to to uh, add a whole lot to this conversation. I wanted to to go back quickly, though, to John and say, John, you know, when I was reading your book. I was certainly uh, anticipating seeing Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky, not so much Michael Jackson and Cindy Lauper. So could you talk about how they sort of fit into 1984? You know, we seem to have lost uh, John on the call. So we'll get him back. And Galen, you and I will talk about uh, some of the things that have happened now. There is a a Supreme Court case in John's book that that he and I can talk about um, and we we can all talk about in in a bit. But, you know, we had just the recent Supreme Court case about, uh, you know, what's happening with with education related benefits for students. Can you go, go over that a little bit? Sure. Now, the the most recent case in a nutshell essentially says that uh, the NCAA can't restrict schools from giving what they call education-related expenses to uh, athletes. And it's an interesting step because I think to some degree, it's just the beginning of a lot of change that could potentially come out of it because uh, as part of the the decision, there was a concurring opinion that was issued by uh, Justice Kavanaugh, which essentially opened the door and, and gave a roadmap for anybody that was thinking of of suing the NCAA over a variety of factors involving athlete benefits, including name, image, and likeness, which you mentioned earlier, uh, and maybe just straight up commercial rights. So it's interesting to me because it, you know, one of the things about John's book and that time period, uh, and I, I don't know if this is specifically mentioned in the book, but right around that time period, you had really the last major lawsuit uh, that got brought before the Supreme Court involving the NCAA that didn't go their way, which was the case against the Board of Regents of Oklahoma, which essentially opened up the televising of a lot more college sports than was being televised at the time. And and to some degree, that led to a lot of the financial uh, realities that we have right now in college sports with, with hundreds of millions of dollars in television contracts being generated every year. Yeah, now that that is in John's book, and looks like we have him him, him back. So, John, if you're, I'm glad I didn't offend you or something. I'm glad you're back. Um, if we could talk about uh, that court case, because I, I saw think of that as almost foreshadowing, you know, what we just saw, even though it's so many years apart. And I think you might be muted. I'm not sure what uh, I'm not sure what has happened here. Can can you hear me now? Yes, sir. I yes, sir. I don't know what uh, I'm. I'm in New York City, so I blame uh, the city infrastructure. Um, no, I I think that um, you know, 37 years ago, summer of '84, you had this uh, Supreme Court case that that Galen is right. This was a real sort of strike across the bow to the NCAA, and it acknowledged this was antitrust, and there was sort of this this price fixing, and this was cartel like behavior, and schools suddenly had the ability to negotiate their own TV deals. The problem was that buried in in what ended up being essentially a concurring opinion was this acknowledgement that athletes in college ought to be amateurs. And so this was an adverse decision for the NCAA, but the NCAA did hang on this one sort of sloppily worded, I mean, I'm sure the, the, the justice did not intend this to have the weight that it did, but the NCAA really seized on this one line of dictum from the concurring decision that acknowledge that there's a special place for for amateur athletics. This is something that Justice Kavanaugh and this was something that that Gorsuch really seemed to go after when they drafted their decision a few days ago. Um, as as Galen says, they, the door is really open for for a broader challenge to this antitrust exemption to to paying athletes to taking this beyond um, taking this beyond these academic benefits. But it is funny that in, in 1984, 37 years ago, and it did not have the fanfare that um, Monday's decision did. I mean, this was not front page news, but this Oklahoma Regents case was uh, a, a blow against the NCAA and did acknowledge this sort of car- cartel-like behavior, but it didn't really get built upon. You know, sc- schools negotiated their own TV deals outside of the NCAA, and we had college conferences, and this is what enabled you know the, everything from the Big Ten Network to even the University of Texas to have its own network but it never really was built upon, you know, no, no one built on it to, you know, put forth this issue that we had uh, a few days ago when we really need to take a long, hard look at this amateur concept. So for you, for you first, and then Galen, uh, something that struck me um, 
when I was reading your chapter on that in the book is the the quaintness of the NCAA's argument that this was going to hurt college athletics because they would they would then be able to flood the airwaves and there would be too many sports out there for people to watch and people were just not going to be able to watch them all and it was ultimately going to going to hurt college athletics that's not really what happened <laughs> no it, it's funny because what was the NCAA's justification this time that it's going to hurt business the fans aren't going to want to watch sports because amateurism is so central to the you know, to the experience of being a college sports fan. I mean, it's very much the same argument they put forth. Um, 37 years ago, you're right. That, that was not the case. I don't think people lost interest in college football because suddenly there was more supply. You know, I, I think uh, it's we, we laugh when we even talk about that, given how much um, you know, we, our appetite for college football is officially uh, insatiable. Um, and it's funny that the NCAA essentially made the same point this time around, which is, oh, it's going to change the fundamental experience for the fan. Fans want amateur athletics. And I think, I, I mean, I love Justice Kavanaugh's logic. Because, look, I, I may love eating at a restaurant where the cooks aren't paid, but that doesn't give the restaurant the right to uh, circumvent uh, the, the, the free market and circumvent price fixing to accommodate me, the consumer. And why, why should it be any different here? I, I don't think if suddenly athletes, uh, you know, instead of billions of dollars, sloshing around the system and then coaches making millions of dollars if the athletes themselves if the labor got a slice of that somehow i don't think people would stop going to uh you know whatever michigan football games or uh duke basketball games so galen as john said you know the, the argument there was that there's going to be fundamental change well i think there is going to be fundamental change but i don't think it's what the ncaa argued what do you see coming out of this ruling i think it's going to be interesting because you know, so much of the uh, this is about controlling the mechanism by which college athletics is delivered to people. And I think John makes a lot of really good points. It, you know, the the case in 1984 was fascinating because that was almost the NCAA against its member schools. And the NCAA wanted to retain control of what games got on television, where the contracts came in. And the conferences and the individual schools said, no, we want that control. This is a bit of a different situation where it's essentially most of the schools along with the NCAA trying to hold back, uh, you know, what's been at this point a decade long or, or more than that even effort to try to level the playing field for athletes. And that is, you know, I think to, to me, the big thing about all of this that has changed the equation and what's going to likely lead to some of the the major changes that you're talking about is how much more money there is now than there was even 20 years ago. You know, I think I remember growing up in the in the 80s and 90s, and you'd hear people occasionally raise the idea of athletes should be paid at the college level, and no one that didn't get a huge amount of traction because you know in the 80s and, and early 90s you still had a lot of head coaches that were making roughly the same amount of money as a college professor. I can tell you as a college professor, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the, the huge amount of money and largely from television, big 10 network, you know, sec network, ESPN money, all of that coming in really since about 2000 has you know, doubled in some cases, tripled the top athletic department budgets. And I think for a lot of people, not just keen observers of the industry, but just the everyday fan, they now look at this and say, well, wait a minute. If, if a coach is making four or $5 million a year, you can't really turn around and tell us that you're all losing money in this proposition. Right. So uh, I want to give our numbers again, or our, our uh, contact information again, at noon edition, if you want to send us questions uh, by over Twitter, you can also send us questions by email, news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're talking about you know, the world of sports. We don't talk about sports much on this show, but we are today and we've got two uh, fantastic guests with us and John Wertheim, the executive editor of Sports Illustrated and a correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes and Galen Clavio, director of the National Sports Journalism Center at Indiana University and a member of the IU Athletics Name, Image and Likeness Task Force. You know, you talk about money, another topic, and it's really very uh, closely related to this is the media and how much money the media has put into athletics. And John, in the book, again, you talk about uh, 1984 ESPN was really on the rise. Uh, just, it was the beginning. And, you know, you can remind me of the details, but I think you said at that time, Chris Berman made something like $16,500 a year. And, <laughs> 
in the media and now and then he was making what a half million or something like that so it's it's a different ball game yeah the uh, i mean i didn't necessarily realize this going in but it became pretty clear to me that we talk about this the summer of 84 and this coming force this building force of cable was absolutely transformative and so it was cnn it was nickelodeon it was mtv but in sports it was espn which was sold in 1984 to abc it had been owned by Getty. Now you had ABC, so a, you know a media company was owning a media company. But the other big thing was ESPN realized, hey, wait a second, we're paying to get on all of these cable systems, but people really like us. People aren't going to order cable if ESPN isn't part of the choices. They should be paying us. And in 1984, ESPN started to get a few pennies from uh, every household. Um, in the coming years, that grew to the, the $7 plus we get today. The households grew from, you know, the, the $25 million or so in 1984 to as, as high as $100 million. So ESPN suddenly went from losing money, which it was prior to 1984, to absolutely minting money. And one impact of that was ESPN suddenly had, had billions of dollars coming through the door before it sold a single 30-second ad. They took that money and they started to you know, use it for rights fees and they bought NFL football games and college basketball and Big Ten football. And um, that money has trickled down to coaches and to athletes. I mean, my, Michael Jordan's rookie salary in 1984 was $550,000. Um, the median NBA salary now is eight figures. A lot of that has been propped up by by media, by cable. And we're, we're in a world now where you know, cable has suddenly uh, gotten some competition. But when we go back and tell the story of sort of the last 35 years in sports cable media rights loom really large because uh, that, that money has essentially propped up the whole enterprise. How do the rest of these sports networks compare to ESPN now? Because, you know, ESPN is not alone. You know, you've got sports, uh, Fox sports, every, every place in the world, it seems like Fox sports, Indiana, Fox sports, Ohio, Fox sports, New England, you know, how do the rest of these compare to ESPN? Um, yeah, I don't, I'm Galen. I don't know if you, I mean, they're, they're not getting what ESPN is charging, but you know, we're all, you, you look at your cable bill and, you know, at, at some level, it's kind of silly. The idea of char- charging people for things that they don't necessarily want or even know they get is, is maybe not a great long-term strategy. It's the same way, you know, the conservatives pay for Fox and I mean, you know, liberals pay for Fox and conservatives pay for MSNBC and people that don't like sports are still paying Part of their cable bill to these networks. So if, if the Big Ten network is just you know make up a number, but if they're they're getting fifty cents a month from you know sixty billion homes, it, it's not ESPN's revenues, but that's 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 a lot of money. And um, yeah. it's going to be interesting if we move to this this a la carte model where you sort of only pay for what you want, or as people continue cutting the cord, it'll be interesting to see the impact of that on, on certainly on sports. Uh, but right now, it's 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 a pretty good deal. A lot of people that pay a lot for cable don't know that their uh, yeah their their cable bills being divvied up this way. But month after month after month, um, all of these networks, all these sports networks, are getting uh, a, a nice bit of subscriber fee. And again, that doesn't even include what they're then charging when they start selling their their thirty second commercials. Yeah, and the point, uh, of course, is that ESPN was sold to ABC back in 1984, and that's well before any of these other networks uh, had an idea that they were going to get into the sports programming, uh, cable programming business. Yeah, Galen, your comments on that? Yeah, uh, John made a lot of great points there. It's interesting on a couple of levels to me. First of all, I think those of us who grew up in Indiana following Indiana basketball didn't realize how little basketball was on television outside of the state uh, during that period. Like, I mean, I remember growing up and watching WTTV and, you know, every game was on TV and that was not the case with most programs across the country. And what happened with ESPN during this time and with the expansion of cable was there was so much more inventory. You went from having three national networks plus PBS. And that was all the programming that you had in a given night to a hundred you know, plus channels and even more than that a decade, two decades later. Uh, so, you know, not only did it make a big difference from a revenue perspective, it also helped popularize a lot of these sports. I mean, you can draw a direct line between college basketball's growth and popularity and ESPN, uh, you know, bringing that in as one of its primary properties during the 80s. I mean, it really helped to put it in a lot of homes that weren't there before. Well, you know, what's going on now is interesting uh, because, 
yes, you've got so many more channels and they're not making as much money as ESPN, but even ESPN has had to shift tactics a little bit. It's gone from counting on this, you know, 90 or hundred million subscribers paying $7 a month to, you know, bringing up their streaming service, ESPN plus charging people five or $6 a month, and then just getting as many rights as they can and dropping it on there. So in some ways they're, they're making less money, but it's slightly better for the consumer because there's even more sports on now. You can watch everything from, you know, Spanish league soccer to tennis to UFC to esports all on one package, and you're only paying four or five dollars a month. And so, it that's probably going to be what we see continue to happen as we move forward in the technological age. Even though you might have cut your cord and and now you're no longer paying one hundred and sixty dollars on your cable bill you're probably paying just that much on all the subscription services you have to get to replace what you were getting with that bundle originally. I had a question from uh, one of our audience members about that, but before I go there, I did want to ask you about, um, it seems to me that this has changed the way uh, media schools, smart media schools are operating too, because you know your center at IU, I mean, there's so many more opportunities for a young person who wants to go into journalism, it seems to me, to get into sports journalism today than to get into news journalism in any way. Am I am I reading that right? Well, in some ways, yes, and, and in some ways, no. I think that the whole equation has changed in terms of, A, we have to teach students from the get-go to be able to work in multiple media environments. I mean, I, I graduated from IU in 2001, and you at that point were still having to make a decision in college whether you wanted to be a newspaper writer or whether you wanted to be a broadcaster. And there really wasn't much intermingling between those two groups. And, and then if you want to do something like sports, rarely was there a, a class that you could take that was specific to that. It was all very general, and the idea was you'd go get your experience when you, you know, worked in the industry. Uh, now we try to prepare our students for all of those potentialities and give them hands-on experience in you know, writing and video and social media and podcasting before they ever walk out the doors with their degree, A, because that's what the industry wants, and B, because the, everything is being received essentially in the same format. Everybody's getting, you know, whether it's written news or, or video or audio that's coming through their Twitter feed, they're all accessing it in essentially the same format. So you better be able to operate in all those formats. Yeah, John, and, and you know, I hope you don't mind me asking, but how, how did you wind up going from Sports Illustrated and in the print side and writing books into the world of television? Oh, man. Um, it's, it's kind of a fluke, but I, what I've come to realize is that sort of so many media stories are flukes. Um, 60 Minutes had a, had a 60 Minutes sports show that was sort of like like a you know, it was like HBO's Real Sports, and I, I did a um, did some essays for them, and then I did a piece for them, and then they sort of said, well, you know, if you want to come try something, uh, come, come to the Sunday show and try a piece, uh, you're welcome to, and did a few pieces, and I, it's it's been great. I mean, it's been a nice match. It's been nice for me to work in a new medium. It's been nice to do non-sports, and at the same time, it's a, I think Galen raises a great, I mean, I don't know, what am I doing? I'm, I'm telling stories, I'm meeting people, I'm sort of trying to tell people something they may not have known you're distilling the best quotes. I mean, in some ways it's very much the same thing I've always done. Um, and I think that's kind of the, I mean, it's, it's strange times in media. Um, I, I can't imagine what, what my message would be if I were teaching students as Galen is, but the flip side is there've never been more outlets. People's hunger for news and, and information has never been greater. And it's, it's kind of fun to, toggle between these different, I mean, you're right. You used to have to pick a lane and it was, I mean, I, I remember when I started sports illustrated, you would have to ask permission to do an NPR interview because it seemed uh, like, like such a diversion to your, your, your work in print. What do you need to be on the radio for? That's completely changed. And there's a lot, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a stable environment and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, but the, but the flip side is a, there's an audience somewhere and B it, it is kind of fun to, you know, toggle back and forth um but in interesting times in media but i i think you sort of take some solace from the fact people still want good stories and people at least are interested if people said i don't really care you know that, that iu football i don't care if indiana football is good or not i have no opinions about who indiana's next basketball coach should be i think we've really got problems if it's just a question of where we're having that discussion where we're getting our news i, I think we can uh this is this is uh solvable 
You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. We're talking about a lot of things in the world of sports, including um, we're talking with John Wertheim, the author of the book Glory Days, the summer of 1984, and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever, and also Galen Clavio, the director of the National Sports Journalism Center at Indiana University. If you want to ask us a question or ask John or Galen a question, it's uh, at Noon Edition. You can send us a question on Twitter or news at indianapublicmedia.org. John, when we lost you briefly before, I, I asked a question that went into the ether about the book, and it was, you know, it was the point that I was not at all surprised about seeing Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky in the book, but I was a little surprised to see Michael Jackson and Cindy Lauper in the book. And I wanted to ask you uh, to sort of explain, uh, you know, in as briefly as you can, because it's kind of a long story in both both cases, how those two came to be a part of this uh, sports and culture revolution of 1984. Oh, man. Uh, well, the Cindy Lauper one is, is probably easier, which is we, we have this force of cable that we've been talking about. And uh, she's a musician who isn't just singing, but she's now doing these little three-minute vignettes called videos on this new network, MTV. And she's uh, she does the Girls Just Want to Have Fun video She's trying to economize, so she uses her mother, but her parents are divorced. She doesn't want to use her father in the video, so she finds this guy she knows, Lou Albano, who uh, has, has a past in wrestling. And they, they get on famously. They do the video. The song's a hit. Then they have the bright idea that they're going to enter this world where, where Lou resides of professional wrestling. Um, they he headline a, a wrestling card in 1984 that MTV broadcasts. Seems like a strange mix, but MTV sort of wants to branch out beyond music. Pro wrestling wants to branch out beyond its niche fan base. It's, it's crossover smashing success that leads to WrestleMania, which is now the, um, you know, the, the, I think it's the second biggest annual sports franchise after the Super Bowl. So if it were for Sidney Lauper, the pop star, and her uh, slapdash video with Lou Albano, we may, may never have had WrestleMania. And then the quickly, the Michael Jackson story is he's the king of pop in 84. He's, uh, you know, his thriller has come out, biggest star in the world. His parents essentially say, okay, time to spread the wealth to your family. They launch the Victory Tour, which Michael Jackson does not necessarily want to do with his brothers. It's managed by Don King, who has somehow left boxing to insinuate himself into this concert tour. It's bankrolled by the Sullivan family, who own the Patriots. Uh, the tour is a fiasco. The Jackson brothers are barely on speaking terms. Michael doesn't want to be there. There are all sorts of cost overruns. They're dancers. They have all these sets that have to be torn down and reassembled at every tour stop. The tour loses money. The Sullivans eventually sell the stadium and the team. The number of dominoes fall, but they end up with Bob Kraft, who buys the stadium, the land, the team, the Patriots, and Bob Kraft in his office has a poster of this victory tour. Because, But, but for Michael Jackson and him feuding with his siblings and going out on this disastrous tour in 1984, who, who knows if we have the, the Patriots dynasty. So uh, two, two sort of random anecdotes, but I think there's a, the larger point is, you know, the history moves in strange ways and, and sometimes something we think is unremarkable, you know, thickened with time a little bit has these you know, sort of butterfly effect has, has these huge impacts down the road. There are a lot of great stories in the book. Those were a couple that uh, I have to say I didn't anticipate. Um, let me, let me ask this question that came in from our listeners. Um, it says, what about sports streaming on Hulu and YouTube? Will that be a beneficial to athletes? Galen, you want to tackle that one? Uh, that's well, it kind of depends on what form it takes. Uh, I look, I think media exposure in general likely helps athletes and helps the entire financial structure that we're dealing with. If you're if you're looking at colleges and universities, athletic departments and saying, well, we're already spending all of this money we're bringing in on other things, then you have to look for other revenue streams. And one of the things that's been interesting is we've done a lot of work on this name, image and likeness uh, situation is how well athletes are able to monetize their social media. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable to see. And, you know, we've seen athletes do very well on YouTube, putting videos up over the course of the last 15 years, only for the NCAA to come in and say, you can't have that channel. It violates your, uh, your amateurism agreement and, and have to demonetize the channel or take it down. Uh, you know, so certainly I think, 
taking those restrictions off would, would be very helpful. A lot of the other areas are things that we haven't thought of yet. Like, you know, 15 years ago, I don't know that anybody's thinking to themselves, you know, what would be great would be streaming college football on a smartphone app. Uh, nobody would have known what most of those words meant put in that order uh, 15 years ago. So I'm sure there's solutions we haven't thought of yet, but the technology is all there. It's going to be, you know, once we get some of the barriers taken out, what can be done to properly make money off of those things? And we did a program, uh, a whole program on the name, image, and likeness. But if you could, uh, again, give a little bit of a reminder about, you know, what your task force is all about. You're in a, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're trying to figure out how IU athletes can do as well for themselves without getting crosswise of any rules, right? Is that sort of what you're doing? To some degree, yes. Although the big question's always been, what are the rules going to be? And uh, so that really is the big question mark. Now, I mean, sir, I think I think to some degree, we know the best routes by which athletes can leverage social media and do things commercially. It's always been a question of what does the NCAA's rule book allow? But what we're seeing now in light of the Supreme Court decision and the NCAA kind of scrambling around right now to release some language on name, image, and likeness before this July 1st deadline, where a lot of individual states are planning on releasing their own rules. Uh, you may have a situation where individual schools like Indiana University might be able to make their own rules on this. And that's a really interesting outcome that I don't know that anybody was expecting when we started this project. Do either of you see this as a possibility where, you know, athletes who are used to just speaking to the media um, or sort of it's suggested by universities, they speak to the media, it might become a situation where it's a, you know, the demand some sort of um, financial remuneration, some kind of pay for even doing interviews with media outlets. Oh, man. Um, I, <laughs> I would hope it would not come to that. I mean, I, I do think, um, I mean, one trend I've noticed is that, you know, fans love social media, media love social media, but I think it's not an either or. And I think fans recognize that they're getting, uh, you know, something that, that's obviously it's subjective. It doesn't include the whole picture. I mean, I, I think that when you, you follow an athlete on social media, it's, it's, it's great when you follow a team, but I think there, there does seem to be a demand for objective, unsparing coverage. Um, I, I think what's interesting is the commerce though. And I think athletes are, I think we're getting close to a point where just as a, you know, you used to be the sort of this, everybody, benefited right the the newspapers would sell copies because they covered indiana and indiana would have coverage that uh helped with fan interest and with engagement i i do think the economics are getting to a point where athletes and teams are saying wait a second why why are we uh why are we sending these media credentials why are we making these players speak i i do think the flip side of that is that fans do seem to want objective coverage and i think that um you know, if you if you can monetize your social media by having your remarks on a game, that's probably preferable to the athletes and going into a press conference where a you're not getting paid and b you don't have control of the content or the opinions. But I also I'm, I'm not sure fans are going to settle for simply, you know, the, the the biased coverage that teams and athletes would provide. I totally agree with John on this. I think everybody loves biased coverage or you know the, the very positivist stuff you'll see from teams and athletes on social media when the teams are winning and the athletes are doing well and and then when when that doesn't happen and there's questions that have to be raised uh, you don't see athletes and teams attacking themselves on social media or asking questions about why things aren't going well so uh there's always that temptation like you see it a lot with like european soccer coverage where there's not the same history and legacy of access to athletes and coaches and managers there. Uh, but even in those circumstances, you've still got a, a, a pretty thriving, uh, you know, media establishment that covers these teams objectively. It's not like fans are just following along with what their teams or favorite athletes are putting out. And that's it. Before I go to the next question, I just have to say, we got a, a hearty hello from one of our, one of our listeners from John Harrell saying privileged to call John and Galen, both friends. Yeah. So I wanted to mention that. Oh, <laughs> okay. nice to hear. Yeah, so, um, you know, another another thing that uh, happened recently, another news story in sports that happened recently was involved Naomi Osaka. I know, John, you were at the French Open. You're 
heading to Wimbledon soon. One of the, I wanted to put this in a context of your book because I thought in the chapter, one of the chapters about that mentioned Martina Navratilova. I mean, she got into a, um, it was a different kind of situation as Osaka, but she got into a, a scuffle with the British press back in 1984 and uh, declined to speak to them because she felt like she wasn't being treated fairly. It's not the same thing as the mental health issues, perhaps that came up now. But if you could talk about this relationship with, between the press and media and athletes and uh, and what the Osaka case may have meant for that. Yeah, it, I mean, I think um, I mean, I think what happened with Osaka and this is, you know, I mean, tennis is kind of my uh, I was called my guilty pleasure. I mean, tennis is where I spend a lot of time and I've, I've gotten to know her a bit. And I think this is really this was really about an athlete with some mental health challenges who wasn't feeling comfortable confronting the media, media that I think has been very, you know, it's usually been a very congenial relationship with her. I think this is really about her mental health, but I think this this was not a a crusade. This was not defiance. This was not an athlete who wanted to take on the institution. But I do think this, I I think we sort of all use this to really examine this athlete media relationship and who's getting what out of it and whether the processes are, are what they ought to be. Um, and I, I think Naomi Osaka didn't quite realize uh, what what, uh, what a Pandora's box she was opening. I think this was really just about her mental health at the moment. But this has become um, sort of a, a pretext to discuss this relationship. And it's, you know, I mean, the, the one thing about tennis is that usually the access means either that there's an open locker room and the players are, are free to turn their back and say no comment or there's in the case of sort of the, the, the NBA, there's a, you know, a press conference, there's a podium, athletes go up several at a time, the moderator calls usually on familiar faces. I mean, in tennis, it's a bit of a free-for-all, and the player sort of sits there, and they're not free to get up and turn their back, and they're, they're, it's a strange situation where sometimes they can be combative, sometimes they can be silly. Um, Naomi Osaka, I went back and looked at her, you know, her, her interviews and her press conferences, and a lot of times it's about anime or fashion or what kind of music she's listens to it's it's not a pretty you know it's, this is not uh you know the, the donald trump in the press corps i mean this is not a particularly combative situation but it is i think it is a little strange for athletes of this generation wait a second i have social media i have my phone i can tell you what i'm up to why do i need to have this back and forth where i don't know the questions in advance and sometimes they can be uh provocative questions and i don't like the uncertainty um and again, I mean, I think this is uh this is a generation that didn't necessarily come up with um, the press conference as just something that's a given. And it, I think th- there's sort of an economics to all of this. And I think that will determine a lot of this. I mean, I think one thing that didn't get talked about with Naomi Osaka and we go back to the Patriots, whenever Bill Belichick talks, we always see Dunkin' Donuts, right? I mean, whenever uh, there's a tennis player interviewed, there are bottles of water next to them and there's, you know, the French Open, their BNP Paribas sponsored the backdrop. This is content for the tournament. This is content for the sport. This is sort of the the digital extra after the movie. So even the press conferences now have, have been monetized. I, I think it's going to be interesting how this all plays out. And I, I think what's interesting about Naomi Osaka is she intended none of this. She, she just wasn't feeling like she was in a place um, mentally where she wanted to have this exchange. But I don't think she... Yeah, I know this for a fact. You know, she she did not intend this to be the sort of talking point and the the referendum on athlete media relations that it became. Yeah, I know, Galen, you've had some things to say about this too. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think so much of that relationship is, you know, it's fraught now, and to some degree, this is you know, the beginnings of this athlete empowerment era that John talks about in the book. That start during this time period, we're almost seeing it reach. Uh, you know, bigger and broader levels every year. And that's been largely, uh, I think, pushed forward by social media. The The reaction on Twitter to this story, you would have thought that Naomi Osaka was being, uh, you know, forced against her will to do something that she's never wanted to do in, in her whole career. And, uh, you know, there's certain overreactions that we see regularly on social media do a lot of these things. I do think, as John points out, it brings up a lot of interesting questions about that relationship. But, uh, you know, the important thing to remember is that sports relies on publicity in order to grow itself, maintain itself, make the money that the athletes then uh, get paid with. 
And, you know, you, you can't just have a venue where you're just showing the games and that's it. Like there's gotta be a natural journalistic element baked into that. And if it was just as simple as, as putting games on and not having athletes have to answer any questions, then we would have already seen uh, the NFL and the NBA with their own networks where they were the ones bringing you all of the games. There's a reason why they're still partnering with media entities. And there is a reason why not just the sports, but also the athlete unions have said, yes, we want to maintain uh, this relationship with media because ultimately there might be individual moments of, of unpleasantness, but on the whole, it benefits everybody involved. And so you'll see these things pop every, every now and again. And that tends to lead to this referendum on whether we should be doing any of this at all. And, you know, what harm is it doing? But I think on the balance, it's been proven to be a good thing, not just for journalists and not just for leagues, but also for the athletes that are participating as well. So you spent some time uh, in the book, John on Martina Navratilova. I just mentioned that with its her uh, her little squabble with the British press. But you know, more important than that, I mean, there were elements of of sexism involved. There were elements of uh, you know about her sexual orientation. We've come a long way since then, but in thirty seven years, we still have you know the NCAA basketball tournament where the the men got uh, like filet mignon and the women got a you know. I don't know what I, I don't I don't know I don't even have a good example of what they got, but they got good social media coverage of what they were what they didn't get. Um, you have a an NFL player coming out for the first time this week. I mean, how have we made as much progress in the last thirty seven years as we should have? I know that's a very broad, open ended question, but just trying to get some thoughts on this. Um, no, it's 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 a great question, and I think on. Some issues, yes. Some issues, no. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't think people, uh, you know, those of us of a certain age, I'm not sure we ever thought that we would see an active NFL player say, I'm gay. And then five or six years ago, I think we would say, wait a second, why haven't we seen an active NFL player say, I'm gay? I mean, I think um, <laughs> Martina comes in, to, to my mind, for, for tons of credit. I mean, this was 37 years ago, and she's you know, unapologetic, openly gay. And she's, you know, I mean, I, she wasn't treated particularly well at the time. I mean, there's stories that she used a supercomputer to look at the statistical tendencies of her opponents. And that was sort of uh, derided, almost as cheating. Now, what, what, what is that? But she was uh, an early, early adapter of analytics. And she was filled with muscles and veins. And that was something that was sort of used against her. Now, of course, what was she doing? She was training and doing the same conditioning that every athlete, male and female, ought to be doing. She was really ahead of her time, and I, I think history will remember her fondly. She certainly didn't get her due in 1984. I'm not sure she has today. But no, I mean, sports, I think, in, in some ways are cutting edge, and in some ways they're, they're very retrograde. And you're right. I mean, we're, talking, we're talking during a week when the Supreme Court unanimously has sort of taken a, a shot at the NCAA as a cartel. We were talking during a week in which an active NFL player has come out and, and said, I'm gay. And it was a story for a day. And then we all went on and this was not, it was, it was a news item, but it wasn't uh, the front page. Um, I, I think, you know, sports, um, it, it depends sport by sport. It depends regionally. It depends context. In some ways, sports are cutting edge. And in some ways, sports, I think, are, are stubbornly, retrograde i think galen it i want you to i'd like to for you to talk a little bit about your students because i believe that you know young people who are going into covering sports these days they don't see the kind of differences that uh, a lot of people in my generation would have seen you know back then is that fair to say yeah i think that's very fair to say the the young people that are in our program now I feel by and large are coming out of a, a background and an experience, you know, as, as middle schoolers and high schoolers where they're exposed to a lot of different types of people. Uh, their, their media is filled with uh, an entire rainbow of, of different races and beliefs and orientations. And I don't notice it being something that comes up at all in class. I mean, I certainly talk about, uh, you know, how coverage of these things has occurred in the past. But to some degree, I almost feel like I'm communicating in a different language to them at times, not that they're not interested, but it's shocking for many of them that 
that that would even be that big of a deal, uh, let alone as big of a deal as it was in the 80s or 90s. And it's, you know, as I, as I like to talk to them about, it's amazing how quickly these things can change. Uh, you know, as I think John brought up a great point about, you know, an openly gay athlete. Like the the the, ex, the acceptance of that just in general society was so different in the early '90s, which wasn't that long ago, versus what it is now. And it feels to some degree like the the change happened almost overnight. Like it's hard to imagine being back in the mindset that was so prevalent at the time. And so it's. It's heartening in a lot of ways, I think, because students are coming in with a much more diverse mindset about the people that they're going to be interacting with, and they're open to learning more about that and interacting with those people while they're in school. And so I think it points to a really bright future, but it is interesting thinking about how much has changed here over the past 35 years. Mm -hmm. So we're in an Olympic year. Uh, there's a great deal of interesting stuff in, in John's book about the 1984 Olympics, one thing I just wanted to mention just in passing was performance enhancing drugs. They're still a big deal, you know, so we, we still have, that's still an issue, even though it was an issue in 1984. Uh, Mary Lou Retton was one of the stars of those Olympic games. There are lots more women's stories. I bring all this up in this context. We've got about six minutes to go in the program, but one of our uh, listeners wants to hear a little bit of a discussion about um, the documentary athlete a and the Indianapolis stars coverage of, gymnastics and the abuse that have been going on for years with Dr. Larry Nasser. Um, what, what kind of changes has that made in the sport? Should it make in the sport? Is it going to be, is that going to be a part of this year's Olympic games with uh, at least Simone Biles, who was featured on 60 minutes recently uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, being one of the athletes that had faced some um, sexual abuse, John. Um. Wow. Yeah. I mean, all, all, I mean, I have tremendous re respect for the Indianapolis star for that, for that report as horrifying as it was. Um, I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I do suspect that, uh, you know, d despite broadcast coverage to sanitize these events, especially if the gymnastics team wins as many gold medals as we anticipate, pretty hard to tell that story um, and not mention the name Larry Nasser and not reference this scandal. Um, I, I wrote uh, a bit last year about the, the Ohio State scandal, um, which was not not dissimilar. It was a male doctor and male athletes. And I, I wonder if maybe, maybe this is unduly optimistic. And I think you know, sports is about power relationships and there's all sorts of manipulation. But I wonder if between social media, the fact that we all have these movie studios in our pockets with our phones and we have a vocabulary to talk about assault and abuse that maybe we didn't 10 years ago, that we certainly didn't, um, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s when this Ohio State scandal was going on. I, I wonder if, um, I, I don't want to say this type of scenario would be impossible today, but, but I think there's a lot more awareness. There are a lot more people who are sort of able to talk about it because of things like the Indianapolis Stars reporting and, and the documentary that you referenced um, athletes are more aware of this. Just anecdotally, when I began covering tennis 20 years ago, I, I heard a number of disturbing stories about coach-player relationships. You hear fewer of those now. Um, I'm not, not naive enough to think that, that athlete abuse is a thing of the past, but I, I do think in part because of all the exposure and the attention and, and the vocabulary and athletes like the gymnasts coming forward, I, I think um, there there's a lot more awareness, which hopefully means a lot fewer instances. That was a, a kind of a long, clumsy question, Galen, but do you have any response to it? Yeah, no, I, I echo John's hope that we're entering an era where people are more empowered to speak up when things like this happen. Uh, but I think it's going to take a lot of work. And I think that whether it's the Indy Star investigation or what happened at Ohio State or these revelations of what occurred at the University of Michigan with Dr. Robert Anderson and, and the alleged abuse that occurred there. Uh, it, it really strikes at the heart of something that was so prevalent uh, when I was growing up in the 80s. And, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that it's changed somewhat. I, I have two daughters under the age of six who may be interested in going into sports. But this idea that 
the you know the coaches or people in positions of authority or doctors in in this team environment should just be left to do what they think is best with children or college age athletes i think that that's something that hopefully all of these revelations of scandal that occurred in the last 30 years will will cause us to reevaluate that because i just think that there there was such a historical uh, lack of oversight in all of these areas and most of the oversight lay in the hands of one or two people and we've seen what that can bring to a situation i mean it can lead to the unchecked power and the kind of taking advantage of people that that has led to all of these scandals so you know that it's it's generally a small number of people but it all it takes is one and and it creates huge issues that can traumatize people for the rest of their lives and so I I hope that John's right that we've got uh, you know far more communication available and people are more aware of it and say something's wrong here. But I think there's there's other structural changes that have to happen as well. All right, we have less than two minutes to go, but we did get one more question from Mike, who says, "Is there anything unique to Hoosier sports culture anymore? Feels to me like commercialization of sports. Many groups of fans are becoming more and more uniform. Is there anything unique to Hoosier culture, Hoosier sports culture anymore, Galen?" Want to try that first? Well, you know, I think the, most of the uniqueness comes in the, just the individual relationships that people have with the teams. I mean, it's, it's hard to say you're, you're never going to have a situation like you had even 30 years ago where because of the lack of television and because so much was done in person and that was your only real exposure to the team, uh, that, you know, that, that's where the culture grew from. But I think, yes, there's, there's a distinct – experience going to an IU sporting event versus going to a sporting event at Michigan or going to a sporting event at USC. It's, it's largely in the attendance aspects and being there, but, but I don't think that it's as uniform as sometimes it seems when all you're doing is watching it through television. All right, John, last 30 seconds for that or anything you want to share with your hometown crowd. Um, no, I, I think that's a great point. I think, you know, sport, sports at some level is this monoculture, but the flip side is, we can watch sports anywhere. I can live in Mongolia and watch every single IU game. In some ways, it's, it's never been a better time to be a fan of a, of a niche team because uh, it, it's so accessible now in a way that it didn't used to be. So we, we, may, be list, we, yeah, we, we may be missing a, a certain uniqueness, but the flip side is it's never been easier to, to be a regional fan. All right. We are out of time. Thank you so much to John Wertheim for joining us today, as well as Galen Clavio. For producer Benta Boutier, engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Thank you.